Well, if you haven't turned there already, we're going to be in Psalm 30 tonight. But the title of tonight's message is, You Turn Mourning to Dancing. You Turn Mourning to Dancing. And as I was thinking about those words, they're very descriptive words. They're very active-driven, activity-driven words. They're action verbs when you think about dancing and mourning. They're vivid. That's what I would say about those words. They're very vivid and descriptive words. And so when you think about mourning and dancing, they're contrasting responses to exact opposite emotions. As you think about, the Bible utilizes contrasts just like anyone trying to teach something would do. You would utilize illustrations and contrasts, even metaphors, those types of devices, you would utilize them to communicate your point effectively. And one of the most useful ways to communicate a point is to contrast two opposing things so that you see the stark dif- difference or the distance between those two items. So mourning and dancing, they don't get too much further apart than that. They're opposite emotions in that sense, but we think about mourning, it's always a byproduct of sadness and sorrow. So what is the emotion behind mourning? Well, sadness and sorrow. Now, dancing, on the other hand, is universally synonymous with happiness and joy. So you think about this contrast that's being set up or going to be set up here in Psalm chapter 30, not chapter 30, Psalm 30. You have sadness and sorrow juxtaposed against happiness and joy. Now, as you think about those two alternatives, if they're both available, and we'll see that they are, although people would prefer naturally to live lives that are characterized exclusively by happiness, the reality is that life is a mixed bag. Life is a mixed bag that is filled with both happiness and sorrow, and it's, it's unavoidable. And I'll, when you come at it from a spiritual perspective, that's not necessarily true in your presence is fullness of joy. So if we stay close to the Lord, if we stay in fellowship, intimate, experiencing intimacy with Him, leaning into Him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, allowing Him to move and direct in our life, we'll experience nothing but perfect peace and fullness of joy. But yet, in the rest of life, there is sadness. There are things that are difficult and hard. In the physical, temporal realm, there are challenges, there are trials, there is suffering. And it's not all the kind of thing that makes you dance for joy, to, to have happiness and joy. Some of it is just plain hard. And there's sadness and sorrow associated with it. So that's the reality of life. And it's generally true as you think about or as it relates to relational experiences with others that you might have too. Which relationship do you have in your life that's characterized only by happiness and joy and never sadness and sorrow? Never, never frustration, anger, uh, bitterness. It's, ne- it's never characterized by those things. It's always just happiness and joy and the only relationship where that's even possible because it's not tainted by humanity it's not tainted by the temporal realm it's not tainted by sinfulness is your relationship with God where it could theoretically always be that way now practically that's not true but even in relationships you have times in relationships where those relationships are thriving so you'd say, I'm dancing right now. I mean, I'm enjoying this happiness and joy associated with this relationship with that particular person. But then there's going to be other times where there's sorrow 
that's brought about in that relationship as a result of various barriers and obstacles of a lot of various kinds that interfere with the happiness and joy that that relationship could have, maybe used to have, maybe you wish it would have it again, but there's, there's obstacles that are interfering with that. There are things getting in the way. There are barriers that are inhibiting or prohibiting, no, inhibiting the ability of you to experience happiness right now in that relationship. Now, as you talk about a spiritual, on the spiritual realm, not just the human realm, but on the spiritual realm, God is saying that I want to be the kind of God that you're enjoying fullness of joy with. That the joy of the Lord is your strength. That you have my peace with you. A peace that surpasses even your understanding. That you can't even fully come to grips with. That you're going to be experiencing this abundant life with me. Not because your circumstances are wonderful, but because I'm wonderful. Not because everything is going great, because I'm great. And because you are blessed in every measure in every way possible. You've been given every spiritual blessing and you've been given the opportunity to live life with me. It doesn't get any better than that. There's no improving upon something that is already as awesome as it possibly could be. And so God wants us to learn that. And David, though, is talking in Psalm 30 about this idea that in that relationship with God, just as in your relationships with people, there are obstacles and barriers that can get in the way of dancing of having that happiness and joy that God wants us to experience with Him, where there's a breakdown in that relationship, where it is not dancing, but instead it is mourning. There's sadness and sorrow because there's been a breakdown in that intimacy, where there isn't that relational closeness like God wants there to be. And certainly you've experienced that in your life, as I have as well, where there are times where in my relationship with God, it's not one that's characterized by God's, by this happiness and joy because of the closeness and intimacy of that relationship. It's one of sadness in a sense because I'm not as near to God as I should be. He's sad and and I'm sad. Sometimes I don't realize it. Sometimes you may not realize it. Many times as you see people struggle in their faith, in their, in their walk of faith, you see that they don't have that intimacy or closeness with the Lord. Sometimes they're not even aware that they're suffering as a result. Sometimes the, the problem with the world's thinking, the world's deception and the se- deception of the sin nature is that people can actually be distancing themselves from God and not be aware that that's actually causing It's a detriment to them, that it's causing destruction in their lives, that they actually are suffering because of it. They don't even know it. That's how scary deception is, especially self-deception. To be in a place where you're suffering spiritually, but you don't even know it. And you think everything's hunky-dory and everything's going fine. And the truth is there's this gaping, missing component in your life, which is the most important of all, of all, which is this close intimacy with God. So David in Psalm 30, he's going to poetically describe the restoration to a joyful state of relationship with God from a state of previous despair that he found himself in. So when you find yourself in a place of despair in that relationship with God, is that the end of it? No. God's in the business of restoration. He's in the business of taking mourning and turning it into dancing, which is the title of our lesson here, our message tonight. So turn to Psalm 30 if you're not there. I'm guessing most of you are there. But let's just read it. It's not overly long, 12 verses. 
Psalm 30, verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life, though. Weeping may endure for a night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. Now in my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, it was by your favor you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. So I cried out to you, O Lord. And to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's look at these first three verses. Now in verses one through three, we see celebrating answered prayers. David is celebrating answered prayers. So this doesn't follow chronologically. There's not a chronological order to this because it's a poem, but he sort of starts at the end and then ends at this ends at the start. There's like a full circle here in the sense where he starts off by talking about how I'm now praising the Lord. I'm celebrating. I'm excited about these answered prayers, this restoration that took place. In the middle, he talks about how he lost out on that to begin with, how there was this dysfunction or this period of mourning in his life spiritually, what brought that about. And then he ends on a positive note. So positive, negative, positive is sort of the framework for our psalm here tonight. But he starts with this celebration of how God has answered his prayers, but more than that, how God has restored him relationally to himself. And so you have this First phrase you see in verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord. I will extol you. Now, extol is synonymous with exalt, another word that unless you heard it here, I can't, I'm, I'm guessing you can't think of the last time you ever heard that word used. But it's a word that means exalt. It involves raising up. Praising or speaking highly of someone in the context of a someone, it could be a something too, but here in the context, it's in the context of God. So praising, raising up, and speaking highly of God. I will lift you up, God. I will make you bigger. I will put the spotlight on you. And we talked about this idea that as man last, last week on Wednesday, we, we, we covered this idea of man's purpose. You know, and as man learned to enjoy the Lord forever, as he was enjoying the Lord, he would be praising God, making God bigger, putting the spotlight on God. This idea of you do have a purpose, but it's, it ultimately starts with this relationship you were made for, and we're going to see the importance of that restoration relationship that David again covers tonight in a little bit different, from a different angle. But living to lift him up is a byproduct, again, of enjoying him. So I'm enjoying him. I'm making him bigger. I'm speaking highly of him. So you could, another translation of this could be, I will proclaim your greatness. That's what it, that's what it means to say, I will extol you, O Lord. I will proclaim your greatness. 
And we've talked about this before in the sense of, uh, I got this from Dave, but from a book he got it from, but the reality is just being reminded of this idea that one generation shall declare your praises or sing your praises, your greatness. The idea is to pass on the sense of awe that we have for God to the next generation, that part of our purpose is to, one, enjoy God personally as we grow in our understanding and grow relationally with Him, as we grow in that understanding of who He is and just how awesome He is, then when I personally taste and see that the Lord is good and I see how awesome and great He is, I would have no other alternative that is realistic or makes any sense, certainly not that's reasonable, but to declare or sing His praises to anyone and everyone who would hear. So you're talking about the song of my life. It's the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the awesomeness of my God that others would hear that as I'm a living, breathing testimony to the goodness of God. And that that would pass on then from me to someone slightly younger than me, maybe my child, maybe the next generation, maybe just somebody younger and that the younger generations could keep singing God's praises too and it would perpetuate itself So that, in general, you would have a human race that would respond to the offer of salvation, ultimately, that God makes to everyone, followed up then with the offer of relationship that God wants to have with each and every one of his children. That that would be something that none would perish because all would see how awesome God is. They would want to put their faith in God's provision to deal with their sinfulness, the exclusivity of God's remedy to pay a debt they could never pay through the sacrifice of the spotless, innocent Lamb of God who would die in the place of sinners like you and I. And then that would just be the beginning, though. That wouldn't be the end. That I would, I would come to a place where I could be born into God's family. I could be redeemed from the debt that was owed by my sinfulness through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone as he died, was buried, and rose again for me. But that that would be just the very beginning then of the rest of my life and the rest of eternity that would be spent living with him. You see that it's not a short-term investment that God is wanting to make in us. It's not a, it's, it is one-time salvation, true. One-time salvation, though, that's intended to then lead to an eternity of fellowship with God starting in this life. Now God says those who he justify, he will glorify. So it's automatic that one day everyone who was justified, who put their faith in Christ's provision for their sinfulness and was declared to be in a right standing with God, every single one of those individuals, regardless of what happens here on earth, will be in a spot of intimacy with God one day. Because the sin nature will be destroyed, sin itself will be done away with. There'll be no other alternative but in a sinless, perfect body and a perfect mind, having been eradicated of all the things that have been interfering in this life, now in eternity, you'll get to enjoy that. But God says, in the meantime, I don't want to have all of these children of mine skip out on this span of their human lifetime, though short in light of eternity, still a bunch of time that has value that God blessed us with as our greatest resource. I don't want to watch a bunch of my children be born into my family at a point in time and then not enjoy that relationship with me for the span of their human existence. I don't want to see that. I want to see them grow in grace, grow in knowledge, learn to trust me more, learn contentment, learn what their purpose is. Let me direct, learn to follow me, allow me to be their shepherd, allow me to be the one who's providing, have this posture of complete dependence and reliance on me. That's my goal for their lives. 
And when they're in that posture of dependence on me, then there's somebody I can use to have an impact on many more people and it'll have a multiplying effect in terms of growing from, going from one person to the next and so on and so forth. That's God's plan. And so as you think about David proclaiming God's greatness, that's just a summary of our very purpose to enjoy God in a way that makes us sing His praises, that results in us singing His praises, I should say. So then why? Why in this particular context is David saying, I will proclaim your greatness, God? Well, he gives four specific reasons for why he's exalting God in this specific context. One you see in verse 1a, you have lifted me up. The second one you see is in Verse 1b, the second part of verse 1, it says, insert you, you have not let my foes rejoice, which just means to triumph over me. You haven't given them victory over me. Now he's talking about literal victory. Uh, He's living in a world where he's constantly under attack from many different fronts. The third thing he says in verse 2 is, you healed me. That's another thing that I'm exalting or praising you for, God. You healed me. Now, you also have kept me alive in verse 3. So I'm going to proclaim your greatness for those four specific reasons and I want you to notice as you look at those verses that all of the focus is completely on God and how he has undertaken. Consider the prevalence of the word you here. You have lifted me up. You, we're inserting that but you have to insert it. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. You healed me. You have kept me alive. This isn't about man. There's nothing about God's word that puts the focus on man. The Bible properly understood always keeps the focus squarely on God and what he has done for a helpless and hopeless and hellbound man and in the sense of sanctification or practical sanctification, a helpless and hopeless man, though not hellbound anymore, but one who without me can do nothing. All of the focus is on God and how he can undertake in our lives to produce something that could bring him glory, something that would be useful in place of something that would otherwise, by default, be useless. You want to be useful and feel like your life has purpose? Then let the Lord use you. Let the Lord work in your life. Now you can be useful, not in a temporary kind of a way, and in an eternal kind of a way. Sometimes people are so desperate to know, what, what is that thing that I'm going to be praised for or that people are going to appreciate about me Uh, some usefulness that I have to society or some usefulness that I might have at the workplace or some usefulness that I might have in my recreational activities or to other people maybe even in my home I want to be I want to get a sense that I'm needed that I'm important that I that I matter And a lot of people who give up on life, frankly, they give up on it because they feel like I don't matter to anyone. I'm not needed by anybody because I don't feel needed or wanted or desired by anybody, appreciated by anyone. I'm going to just end it. The Christian never has to deal with that. I mean, you might have to deal with it, but not because of your thinking correctly. The Christian has the answer for his purpose. The Christian knows what, should know what he's all about. It's to keep the focus on God, to keep the focus on him and what he can do for man when man was otherwise, again, helpless without him. Now, the other thing I want you to note here is that God's, uh, 
intervention was preceded by David's posture of dependence. He had to get to a place where he could see that he was helpless apart from God intervening in his life, apart from God answering his prayers and God providing for him. He was in a place where he needed God. So look at the language you see there with the phrase, I cried out. I cried out to the Lord. No, I cried out, I cried to you for help. Verse 2, I cried out to you. Now ultimately, I cried out to you for what? I cried out to you for help is the idea. You only cry, and, and the takeaway here is you only cry for help after you recognize your helplessness. You're not crying out for help because you think you have this all figured out. You're crying out for help because you see that you need God's help. You need God's intervention. So you're never going to get God's intervention because you're never going to ask Him for assistance if you think you have it all under control. It's having this posture of dependence, though, that causes you to ask God to help, and that's a product of a humble and dependent heart. A humble and dependent heart is something God can finally use. Turn a few pages to your right to Psalm chapter 51. I want you to see, and this is a famous verse, frankly. It doesn't use the exact words that we're using here in terms of the word humble, but it means the same thing. Psalm 51, we're looking for verse 17. Psalm 51, 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What, are the, what is the posture, what is the mentality that God can honor? The mentality that God can honor is one that is humble, a broken spirit. A broken spirit is not trusting in itself anymore. A contrite heart, a heart that sees that it's not been in the right in the past, that wants to be made right again, made whole again. That's what God doesn't despise. God despises what though? Pride. He despises an independent heart because the whole message of the Bible is you can't do this without me. Now I want you also to note this, that the obstacles and trials that David was facing here in this immediate context, they were likely quite different in detail than the challenges you are facing. But they still have, they're generally still the same in terms of how you would think about them. Like you're not probably facing the exact kinds of things that had David in a place of despair where you're not actually talking about foes in, time, in terms of military foes that would rejoice over being victorious over you. That's not the way our lives are in this country in this day. But yet you're facing similar kinds of things. He's talking about healing here. I believe he's talking about physical healing here, that he had actual physical problems that he was experiencing. A near-death kind of experience is what he's talking about, I believe, when he says, you have brought my soul up from the grave, you have kept me alive. This was a day where your very ongoing existence hung, in, hung by a thread was, in the, was, was something that was not guaranteed because of the violence and the kind of adversity that somebody in leadership that he faced, people seeking to overthrow him, undermine him, 
people hunting him, seeking his life at different times in his life, different foes that he faced that you won't face. But does that mean that the principle is any different? No. The, the principle is largely the same, though we'll touch on con- another thing about context. Principle is largely the same. You have foes that you're facing too. And in terms of the generic nature of foes, the world, the flesh, and the devil, those foes have been the same and remain the same, and they haven't changed a bit, not a hair. Now, the specific application of some of the adversity that you face, sure, slightly different. But the overall idea is you're either going to trust God with that, you're going to draw nearer to Him and enjoy the intimacy that He wants you to have with Him in the face of all of that, or you're not. And sometimes it helps to know that somebody else is going through the exact same thing you're going through. Maybe it even provides you comfort. I hate to say the reason oftentimes, deep down, if, you're, if you really knew it, is misery likes company. You like to know that I'm not the only one going through this exact same thing. But the truth is that as you think about some of the things you've gone through, they're similar to what other people have gone through or are going through. But God's faithfulness, God's character, remember he's an immutable, unchanging God. He never changed at all. Not in any of it, not for anyone, no matter what it was that David was facing, no matter what it is that you're facing here this evening. See, David couldn't handle his trials apart from God, and you can't handle yours apart from God either. David needed to trust the Lord. You need to trust the Lord with what you're going through. David needed to turn to the Lord for help, and so do you. There's so many direct applications that we can make, even if it's not a completely the same scenario. Even if there are some distinctions that could be made, the general principle is still the same. You're just like David in this, in this spot, in the sense of you'll either trust him or not. You'll either turn to him or not. You can't handle this, though, on your own. Now we get to this second section here. Joy comes in the morning. So he's, again, starting out positive. God answered my prayers. He restored me. He answered these very specific different things that I was going through. He was my help. He was my rescue. He was my provision. He was everything that I needed. But you'll see that there had been a time, of course, where that wasn't true. So he's saying as a result of the hard things that you're going through, remember that there's always a new dawn, a new day, a new dawn. Your mercies are new every morning. There's a practical, specific application of that in the sense of he's saying the same type of thing here in verses 4 and 5. But joy comes in the morning. Let's read them again. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, His favor, though, is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Are you in a place here tonight where what you've been going through has been going on for a while? Maybe you are. God says it won't go on forever. If for no other reason, then you won't live forever. In most instances, though, it won't even go on for an extended period of time in this life. The trials and challenges tend to be, I say tend to be transient. Some of them aren't. But I would say the vast majority of them are. Things that you face, they seem like a big deal at the time, and then in hindsight they weren't because it was a blip on the screen of an already short life in terms of eternity. But even if it were something that would persist for the rest of your natural life, it wouldn't be for long because our life is a vapor that's here for a moment and then passes quickly away. So should I fixate on that? No. I should fixate on the 
joy, the peace, the comfort, the hope that comes from knowing that, even if I have to face this for the rest of this run here on earth, it's going to pale, it's going to pale, it's going to pale in light of eternity. It's going to seem so small when I see his face. And if I can see his face more clearly here in this life without seeing his face being united with his face, so to speak, but if I can see his face more clearly now, it'll make it more dim even here on earth. Remember, look full in his wonderful face and what? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We sing it. We appropriate it by faith at times. And then what? And then we forget. Then we go back to, oh, ye of little faith. And we struggle again. We wrestle again with things we ought not to struggle with because we're supposed to do what? Cast those cares upon him for he cares for you. And so we have to come together and remind each other about these things as we look into God's word. But as we break down this section here, David is now inviting other believers to join him in praising and thanking God. So he starts out, verse 4, with sing praise to the Lord. And then he, the rest of verse 4, the second half, give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And they both sort of speak for themselves. Be grateful as you remember what God has done is the idea there. Be grateful as you remember what God has done. Has God done plenty that you could recall? Yes. In your own life? Yes. In the lives of other people you know? Yes. In the lives of of believers in time gone past that were recorded in his word? Yes. So can you find comfort in that? And that's sort of the idea. Be grateful as you remember what God has done. In your own life, you'd only have to look back to, though, the place where he rescued you from a pit of despair that had you, where you were standing, you were standing firmly in a place that was pointed in the direction of an eternity apart from him. You were looking forward to an eternity spent in the place he is not, which the Bible calls the lake of fire or hell, that's where he rescued you from. If you thought of nothing else he'd ever done in your life except for change your eternal destiny, wouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough? To now continually be singing his praises and thanking him and having a heart of gratitude for what he's done in your life? And that's what David is getting at. The spotlight is again properly on him. It's on God. Sing praise to the Lord. Now, did the Lord rescue David from specific things? Yeah, he just got done talking about him, but he doesn't say, now let's celebrate me. Let's celebrate what God has done in my life instead. Let's celebrate who God is. Let's sing praise to the Lord. Let's give thanks when we remember his worthy name, his holy name. The spotlight's on him. Now, what is the stated basis for praise and gratitude? Well, God's provision, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's, and God's grace. God's provision, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, and God's grace. Some of those overlap. Now, we see that with this language that says, His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for life. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Now, is there a sense there that God is a merciful and gracious God? Yeah, because his chastening, his discipline, characterized by the word anger here, is momentary. It's intended to bring about a change of thinking, 
But in the bigger context, what's the bigger context? His favor is for life. At times, he disciplines and chastens his children to bring about changed minds, changed thinking, ultimately then changed behavior, but not focused on that as a byproduct of the changed thinking. But the bigger context to remember in all that is God's favor is forever. It's for life. He says it another way by saying, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. He's in part talking about trials, but in the immediate context, he's probably, I say probably, he's most likely talking about some divine discipline and some divine chastening that God allowed in his life because David had lost that intimacy with God. He had he had given up or he wasn't enjoying fellowship with God because he was doing his own thing. Now, I know that that's likely what's true here because he talks about how he did that in the next few verses. That that's in fact what he had been doing. Operating in pride. Operating independent from God. Taking credit where only God deserved the credit. So, as you think about what he's saying, though, even in the face of this, this has already now happened. This isn't something that David is saying is going to happen in the future. He's recalling what already happened. There was this progression that took place. Now he's getting to what he had to endure. He had to endure the nighttime because of his own rejection and rebellion against God. He did face God's discipline. But then what did he also experience? God's restoration. This is about restoration. Joy that comes in the morning. Favor that lasts a lifetime. So in our immediate context, we have to remember that David is living under the law, under the Mosaic Covenant, where God said, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed. He was talking about more than just the spiritual realm when he said that. He was talking about both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. There were physical blessings that were associated with God's being pleased, or sometimes it's referred to as God's favor. God was pleased because they were what? Walking by faith. Was he pleased by the obedience? This is what people get confused about the Old Testament. Was God favoring the people just exclusively because they were obeying? He was treating them more like a father would treat a child and saying, you don't need to know all the reasons. I'm looking out for your best interest because I love you. Just obey me. I'm protecting you. I'm putting a protective barrier around you in the form of some of these rules and directives that I have for your life. And I'm telling you that I love you desperately, that I'm a good God, that I'm a faithful and loyal God, and I put this up not to stifle you, but once you could be set apart and be identifiable as a a people of faith, But secondarily, I'm putting them in place like a parent would put a fence around a yard on a busy street or something like that so that their children are safe. Or a parent would put some limits on the kinds of things they would give their children access to. They'd say, "Um, you're not allowed to use the chainsaw. But why? Well, just trust me, chainsaws are dangerous. You're not allowed to use it because you're a child right now. When you're older, though, I may, I may teach you how to use that. Or possibly a parent would say something like, don't touch these firearms. Stay away from these. They're dangerous. They're not for children. They're for adults. And if they're handled improperly, they can cause great harm. The child would say, but why? Well, you can have to trust me, son. I can't explain everything to you when you're little because you won't explain, you won't understand it all. Just trust me when I tell you I'm looking out for your best interests and one day when you're ready, 
maybe I'll introduce you to this and show you how to use it properly. And, and that was the function of the law. That was the function of God putting up a hedge, if you will, around this nation because they didn't have the full picture yet. They didn't have the full story yet. You, you hadn't had all of the ongoing revelation that God was going to reveal about the specifics of his plan of redemption. So that dispensation was characterized by God just saying, trust me. Just like this dispensation is characterized by God saying, just trust me. Just like innocence was characterized by God just saying, trust me. Now his house rules or how he dealt with people changed, but for David in the context of where he's living under Mosaic law, God said, listen, you're going to please me If you can just learn to trust me, not because necessarily you're scared of me, although God is an awesome and and fearful God in the sense of his power is absolutely overwhelming and you can see examples of that at times in God's word. But he's saying, I want you to respond to the idea that I, for you, that I care about you, that I'm instructing you in this way because it will benefit you. Now it's pleasing to me and I'm going to bless and honor the child that is willing to just obey now, at times, as a parent, are you able to reward or, or bless a sense, even in a, physical, in a physical way, a child that consistently chooses to trust you and obey what you said would be in their best interest? Is that pleasing to you? Is that something that you might even reward at times? The answer is, yeah. Many parents do. I'm so thankful for how well you've been listening and how well you've been following my instructions for your life. Uh, it, I, I'm going to... I'm going to get you this thing that you don't deserve or need, but I just want to show you how thankful I am that you would just trust me with some of these things I've been trying to teach you. Many times parents do that. They might not directly say that, but that was sort of the idea here. And so, again, we have to remember that context that God says, I'm going to physically and spiritually bless you when you're willing to trust me, but there will be consequences associated with not trusting me and not obeying me. And... Some of that would involve unfavorable circumstances, opposition by others, physical ailments, and all kinds of those kinds of suffering or difficulties or trials. They were associated with God's dissatisfaction or at times discipline. God used foreign armies. He used plagues. He used disease. He used a number of different things to provide consequences to those who would not respond to his instruction and his direction for their lives. Now, he also promises that he will chasten everybody that he loves. Every son, he'll chasten them. There's the idea of divine discipline that is effectuated by God to bring about a change in your thinking and my thinking too. Now, sometimes I believe that God doesn't have to directly orchestrate any particular kind of discipline because we bring about enough hardships and trials and circumstances in our own lives that the consequences are already right there for God to just use to accomplish the purpose that he wanted to, which is to change our mind, to change our thinking. I don't think he has to necessarily go out of his way that often to actually bring about some kind of chastening or discipline for his children because we're doing a fine job with that already, aren't we? Plenty of things that, whether it's the other people in our lives that are affecting us with circumstances and trials that could bring us back to the Lord, or it's our own choices that are causing us trials and circumstances that could bring us back to the Lord, uh, how often would it be that God would have to come up with something different than those things? Isn't that plenty, don't you think? That's been my opinion. Uh, Tell me if I'm wrong. 
afterward. There's lots of stuff that God can use to correct us uh, in our lives. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I just want to remember or remind you that there's the idea of God chastening or wanting to correct his children, discipline them for their own good or use circumstances to bring about changed thinking. That's not limited to any one area or dispensation or time period even in the Bible. God has always been wanting to bring his children to a place where they could see and think the way he wants them to see and think. But Hebrews chapter 12 is one of the more famous New Testament passages about this. Hebrews chapter 12, 7, verse 7 is where we want to pick up. It says, if you endure chastening, God is dealing with you in that moment as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten or correct? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Meaning if everybody else is being corrected because they are sons and you're not being corrected, then you're not even a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And what did it lead to? We paid them respect. It taught us something. It changed our thinking. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days, talking about human parents, they chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, he does it for our profit. That we, he never does it without a point or a purpose for our own good. That we may be partakers of his holiness. Holiness referencing sanctification, being set apart. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Instead, it's painful. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It doesn't last forever. And it didn't last forever in David's life either. His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The focus here is present, practical, relational restoration. That is what God was after in David's life, and that's what he's after in your life. That is always God's focus and priority. The restoration experience is likened to the morning light we see in verse 5. The light of morning brings with it what? Healing. The light of morning brings with it restoration and renewed blessing. That, be, that intimacy that's been restored with God. Now as a result, what happens? Weeping is replaced with joy. And isn't that a wonderful experience? Maybe it's been a while since you've experienced that. Maybe you didn't recognize it even where you were off doing your own thing and you were miserable. And then God corrected your thinking. And you had a change of heart and you got your focus back on Him. Wasn't that wonderful? Wasn't a purposeless, sad existence replaced with light, God's light? Even if the circumstances you know, of life itself maybe didn't change dramatically, but your whole outlook changed because your focus came back to the Lord and His goodness and provision in your life? Now we see in verse 6 and 7, you need to learn from failure. That's God's desire, that you would learn something. So verse 6, it says, Now in my prosperity, he's saying this in the past tense, in my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. Verse 7 was the reality though. Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain stand strong. So what was the result of that prideful attitude from verse 6? You hid your face and I was troubled. See, pride and independence and self-confidence is always the underlying problem. 
David acknowledges and explains this poetically here where he says, in my prosperity I said this, I had this attitude, I shall never be moved. See, pride caused David to take credit for what God had done. See, he recognized, other translations have it a little bit clearer where you see that. God had, it was by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. But when that was happening in David's life, so who gave David that strength and prosperity? God did. What did David do? He became prideful about it and started to take credit for where God alone should have had the credit. And so then David started to say, in this time of prosperity that I'm enjoying, I'm going to start having this idea that I shall never be moved. Like, I have a high view of myself. Pride starts to creep in. I don't need God anymore. Well, what was the result of all that? See, because success and prosperity, they often breed independence and pride. And that's exactly what happened here with David. Things are going great, so I don't need the Lord anymore. I'm going to start taking credit for where I'm at. But the ultimate result was the fellowship between David and God was interrupted. You see that with the language, you hid your face, and I was troubled. So then we move on. Restoration is tied to orientation and communication. Where is your gaze fixed? Where, are, where is your gaze, where are you looking? What are you occupied with? What are you oriented to? Yourself, your circumstances, your trials, or to your Savior? Are you talking to God? To restore fellowship involves having a conversation with God, communicating with God. So let's see that in verses 8 through 10. I cried out to you, O Lord, and the Lord I made, and to the Lord I made supplication. So as you look at that in verse 8, you see that David stops looking to himself and he redirects his gaze to his God. Remember, it's a personal God to David. I cried out to you. I made supplication. I had requests for you, God. And then in verse 9, he's just being somewhat sarcastic. He's paraphr- I'll paraphrase here, but he's saying, I can't praise you from the grave. Like I said that to God, like, if you're not going to restore me, then of what value will it be to you? How can, I, how can I go back to using my life in a way that would have value by praising you and honoring you and giving you the glory? How can I do that if I'm dead? So won't you now, now that I see that I was wrong and have acknowledged that I'm wrong and I'm crying out to you for help and I'm acknowledging my transgressions, will you, will you come back and, and restore this relationship, Lord? Will you rescue me now, again, in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, will you rescue me from these trials and tribulations that I'm facing as a result of my disobedience, of my rejection of you? Will you undertake so that I could survive this near-death experience that I found myself in? Now, we know that that happened because he started out with, it's kind of spoiling the punchline with those first three verses. This did happen. But this is what happened, is he had to have a change of attitude. So David cried out for three specific things. He said, hear me, have mercy on me, and be my helper. You see those in verse 10? But you see again, David's focus is completely on God now. Completely different from what we looked at in verse 6. In my prosperity, what had he said? I, I, I shall never be moved. That's exactly what Satan is trying to do, what the flesh is trying to do. Put the focus on self. David got out of that, got his focus back on the Lord. He says, hear me, have mercy on me, be my helper. Now that particular word for mercy is not hesed, it's not steadfast or faithful love. It's a word that refers to being gracious. Be gracious with me, God. And then ultimately as a result of your grace, help me. Help me with what I'm facing right now. See, David recognizes his guilt and he appeals to God's grace. That's what we need to do. 
That's what, when you talk about what the idea is behind even 1 John 1, 9 that we talk about, it's a favorite verse of many. You can't, you can't be made right with God if you don't see that your thinking is flawed. If you don't acknowledge that you're not, you're not thinking correctly. If you can't take inventory of the different ways that you are operating in a way that is not saying the same thing as God where you've been doing your own thing, things that don't please Him, things that aren't in alignment with His will, His purpose, His plan for your life, how can He then restore the relationship when you're not going to even be in a place where you're acknowledging that there's something that is interfering with that relationship? Now be careful though because there's many, many things that you're doing that are interfering with the closeness and intimacy you could be having for God that you're not even aware of. You couldn't even name them in in, in that sense or inventory them in that sense because you don't even know what they are. So it's about a mindset in any particular moment that says, I want to trust you, I'm going to depend on you. I haven't been doing that, but I, I want to be doing that now. And God says, positionally, you're already restored in the sense that I've already positionally forgiven you from all your sins. But in terms of intimacy and fellowship, now there's not that barrier getting in the way anymore because your mindset is back in a place of humility and I can use that. Dependence and I can use that instead of pride and independence, which I can never use. So we see that David David is recognizing that and appealing to God's grace, then David clearly communicates this renewed attitude of dependence to God. He actually tells God that. Now we end with verses 11 and 12 that you see that restoration leads to happiness and and renewed focus and purpose. So we read verse 11. It says, You have turned for me. You did this for me personally. My mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and exchanged it for what? Clothed me with gladness instead. And to the end, for what purpose? That my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So as we wind down those last couple of verses there, God again, he always responds favorably to corrected thinking. God is not about punishing you. He's about disciplining you so you could change your thinking and restore what? Restore fellowship with him. God's not seeking to extend that period of separation on a practical fellowship level. He wants to have that be as brief as possible. That's why when we say keep short accounts with others and keep short accounts with God, that's what we're talking about. God doesn't want us to belabor this negative circumstance that we find ourselves in, he wants us to acknowledge it and get right with him. Come back to a place where we're mentally trusting and depending and walking with him. That's what he's all about. See, God is the one that brings about the restoration. You simply change your mind. Sometimes you're thinking about how could I fix this? On a human level, you mess something up with a person. And, and oftentimes you might spend a bunch of your time racking your brain and, and saying, how can I make this right? And that's appropriate at times. What could, what could you do to help rectify that situation and bring about that restoration in that human relationship? But as it relates to God, your focus isn't on, on restoring anything. He's in the business of bringing beauty from ashes. He's in the business of changing mourning to dancing. Your choice or your focus is on changing your thinking and changing your mind. And then God automatically, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's God that does the restoration. See, now look at the focus on God. You, 
do this. For me, you have put, you have clothed. So as we're looking at our, our verses there, it's God. You have turned me, for me, my morning into dancing. You have put my sackcloth off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So the focus is on God. It's always on him. The Bible, again, properly understood. The walk of faith, properly understood, always keeps the focus on God. Now, this was his objective all along. He celebrates successful outcomes in the sense that God always wanted to bring us back to a place of restoration, to a place where we're now in close harmony with him again, where we're enjoying him again, where we're rightly relating to him again. Now, that restoration process produces joy. You see that in verse 11, you have turned mourning into dancing, joy. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with, glad, clothed me with gladness, joy. It's a stark poetic contrast. Restoration comes back, t- takes things that were dark and brings them to a place of light. It brings us to that new morning. Again, as you're thinking about how God is in the business of doing this and, and in the business of trying to restore. And that's what David is talking about here. Now, what's the result of that restoration, though? I enjoy you again. I enjoy you again. Can you enjoy the Lord while you're estranged from Him? The answer is no. When the relationship is restored, though, and you're experiencing intimate fellowship with Him, now you can say, I enjoy you again. Now, remember my order here again? I enjoy you again, so I praise you again. Now, that enjoy you again isn't here, but it's, it's, it's here, as clear as can be, The idea that now that I'm restored to a place where I'm enjoying intimate fellowship with you, now what? Well, now I can sing your praises again. And I can thank you forever. The only natural result of being in that kind of a place where you're restored to God. So you turn mourning to dancing. See, mourning again, it's used to represent the consequence of broken fellowship with God. And dancing is representative of the joy that accompanies this right relationship with Him. Now, the question is, do you want more joy, happiness, and dancing in your life? Now, some of you are like, I'll never dance. I don't want any dancing. I don't even like smiling that much. I certainly don't want to dance. Come on, liven up a little bit joy, happiness, and dancing in your life. That's what God wants you to experience, the joy of the Lord. That's what what He's promised. See, there's no lasting or satisfying joy or happiness apart from present fellowship with God. That's a fact. It's a transdispensational fact. It's always been true. There is no lasting or satisfying joy or happiness apart from present fellowship with God. God desperately wants to restore a right relationship with you. Don't let independence and pride get in the way. That's what a lesson David learned here. The morning light can bring joy back to your life too, just like it did, it brought joy back to David's life. Let God turn your morning to dancing by trusting him, by appropriating his grace, just like David was praying for God's, that God would treat him graciously, by depending on him, which David did by crying out, help me, which David did by talking to the Lord and acknowledging where he'd been at. He's saying, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to cry out to you again, Lord, instead of having that haughty, proud attitude. By enjoying fellowship with him again, God uses that to to turn your mourning into dancing by praising him and thanking him. Those are the kinds of things that bring about this outcome. You turn mourning to dancing. And spiritual success ultimately always comes back to, am I going to keep the focus on him or am I going to be 
focused on something or someone else. But we have a God who can turn mourning to dancing, and we need to take advantage of that when necessary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for your amazing love that is demonstrated through your willingness to make us right with you positionally through your death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you, though, that you also made it possible for us to live life with you. And even when our intimacy with you is hindered, when, it's, when there's things that get in the way that you make it possible for us to resp- restore that closeness to you. In fact, you're the one who does the restoration, but you make it possible for us to be restored to you, brought back into fellowship with you if we would just let, get pride out of the way, get independence out of the way and start, get our eyes aligned and focused and fixed back on you. We'd start trusting you again. And we could acknowledge that we haven't been doing things, we haven't been thinking right and we could have a change of thinking and say the same thing as you and agree with you so that we could experience that, experience that intimacy again. Thank you again for these promises in Jesus' name. Amen.